glad to have you back for part three of this series on Cold War cinema. In part one, we looked at escalation and all of the tensions that might have led to a war between the superpowers. Part two explored the critical moment when the missiles would fly and why diplomacy might have broken down the glitches in the machine. If you haven't listened to those, go back and do it, because this series on film is all about themes. And that brings us to part three. Duck and cover. Protect and survive. The moment of the nuclear strike. This time on the Cold War Vault. In all likelihood, if you heard that and didn't already have a shelter plan in place, you were going to be very, very unlucky very, very fast. When I was growing up in the American Midwest in the 1980s, the local fire department spun up the air raid siren every Saturday at noon, which left me very uneasy. The old air raid sirens were repurposed in 1970, along with the realignment of the National Civil Defense Plan away from nuclear war and toward national disasters. That culminated in the creation of FEMA in 1978. The sirens in my childhood were sounded for tornadoes, but the hardware was the same. It wasn't until the War on Terror that all of those local air raid sirens went back to drilling for some kind of an unspecified wartime crisis. Something awful. The air raid sirens still exist, and still sound around the United States weekly or monthly for testing. But for historians of the Cold War, the stories of public safety that surround their wailing for storms or tsunamis, can't mask their original intent. The last-ditch declaration of the worst-case scenario. The announcement of an inbound nuclear strike, too little and too late. Let's go back and look at how that terrible moment used to show itself in popular culture and particularly in the movies of the Cold War. Part 1. The Moment of Impact in Government Films Early in this series, we've seen that it was really the governments themselves that were the pioneers of using movies to show the likely outcome of a nuclear-fueled Third World War. I shouldn't maybe say likely, but at least the outcomes that were acceptable for civilian consumption. This was generally through training and educational films. The very many variations of the Encyclopedia Britannica-style film strip for the elementary classroom was the playground for government instruction on what a war might look like, and exactly what you were supposed to do about it, before, during, and after the strike. Usually the purpose, especially in the early days, was to ease the public's fear of war. The early films were a tool for living through the unthinkable, virtually. 
Through the first decades of the Cold War, there are almost no examples of the reality of the immediate effects of a nuclear strike on people or the effectiveness of civil defense measures. In the vanishingly few instances that did attempt to demonstrate these facts, the results are weirdly mixed. In a 1955 episode of the U.S. Army's weekly television series, The Big Picture, which is available piecemeal on YouTube, the immediate effects of the bomb are described in a briefing to Army personnel participating in Exercise Desert Rock 6, a live-fire atomic maneuver, as they called it. This was when soldiers took shelter in foxholes and then marched toward Ground Zero after the detonation. The officer giving the briefing says that there are only three things to think about, blast, heat, and radiation. He goes on to describe these effects and their dangers with relative accuracy, just stumbling slightly with his description of radiation. And now we come to what a lot of people consider the $64 question, radiation. This is the one new effect obtained by the use of an atomic weapon. Truthfully, it's the least important of the three effects, as far as the soldier on the ground is concerned. But I don't know. Maybe it actually is the least important. It's certainly the people who've been blown away and vaporized who would say so. In another government-sponsored film of the same nuclear test, Operation Q, in scenes I will bet you've seen over time, houses and mannequins are subjected to the effects of the bomb to test civil defense preparedness. A mannequin of a boy stands by a window as the shockwave arrives and pulverizes the house. And pulverizes the boy, incidentally. All of the charred mannequins are seen later being pulled out of the rubble. It's one of the more well-known clips in nuclear testing cinema, especially because of that interior shot. A few mannequins unlucky enough to be exposed in the open to test textiles have flash burns and damage from flying debris, as you would. But the narrator is more concerned with the effects of the flash on their clothing. Do you remember this young lady? This tattoo mark was left beneath the dark pattern. And this young man. This is how the blast charred and faded the outer layer of his new dark suit. Operation Doorstep was filmed two years earlier during the Upshot Knothole testing series, and it seems similarly callous toward the well-being of mannequins. The camera pans down over a house demolished in the blast as the narrator says that 15,000 tons of TNT left a mass of rubble less than a mile from ground zero. A human being in a shelter should have survived. The camera shows a mannequin in a lean-to shelter, arm twisted, shirt ripped open, and tattered by the force of the blast. A fun fact. Those mannequins from the tests were returned to their Las Vegas department stores to be shown in display windows. 
I can't easily put myself in the minds of those early cold warriors. The dads and moms and teachers watching these films and trying to convince themselves that it offered some kind of hope. I hope it did. Part 2. Let's talk about duck and cover and the American systems of civil defense. theme today is surviving those first few moments of a nuclear attack. The strike. I don't believe that little Jimmy Mannequin survived, but I do believe that there were plenty of plans and possibilities that make the story interesting. My friends and neighbors, who know what I do with this show, give the frequent refrain about duck and cover. Either their memories or the ironic invocations of the film Atomic Cafe in the 1980s, or thereafter. I tell them the same thing every time. It works. Sort of. But for how long? Mostly, though, those early civil defense proposals for survival were not going to help for very long at all. Actually, let's look at the duck and cover era. On one hand, it's an important period in American civil defense, and on the other, maybe unfortunately, it's an ironic wink to Cold War Americana. American civil defense was never a coherent policy. The constantly shifting sands of political appointees meant that civil defense in the United States was more about the flashy campaigns than a long-term system of survival. And even more cynically, campaigns that captured the imaginations of supporters in government so as to produce a continued flow of cash. As the threat changed with the dawn of new weapons technologies, civil defense recommendations changed in response. Of these campaigns, probably there are none more iconic than duck and cover. You might not know that it was actually originally part of a series of five civil defense films, so there's more value for your nostalgic tax dollars. Duck and Cover was made for children to introduce the concept of taking immediate shelter and covering exposed skin that might be prone to flash burns or flying debris. The whole idea came from the Hiroshima bombing survey after World War II that spent extensive time looking at structures and injuries especially the many students of the various schools. So the most famous duck and cover film uses an animated turtle named Bert to illustrate the concept. Duck and Cover is a cheery instructional film, despite the subject matter, and was well received. It was screened for the first time in early 1952 
and sent out to schools all over the United States. Through 1953, the Federal Civil Defense Administration still promoted duck and cover as a viable personal defense, admitting in the annual report for 53 that some combination of localized evacuation and duck and cover would have to be used because most cities would have no more than 15 minutes of warning time. What I think surprises many is that for as iconic or iconically ironic as the campaign is, the whole thing was discontinued by 1955 for being already obsolete. It was just three years of the whole Cold War. Elementary schools and libraries were asked to return their copies and stop showing it. Whether they did that, I really can't say. Duck and Cover gave the concept a name, but it had actually been introduced in previous civil defense preparedness films like Pattern for Survival in 1950. The narrator, Chet Huntley, says the only warning of an attack might be a bright flash. He delivers his lines dramatically while gesticulating wildly. Here you go. But now, suppose the enemy succeeded in sneaking past our warning system. Although this is highly improbable, let's assume that the bomb was delivered without our being alerted. There'll be an intense flash of light. When you see that light, forget all about shelters and preparations. Just don't look at that light. Cover your eyes with your elbows like this and then dive for cover. You have just three seconds. How are you going to use that chance? In the U.S. civil defense vision of the moment of impact, people do survive. But I'm a fan of the British cautionary tale, The Waking Point from 1951. It shows a stampede of panicked civilians looking for shelter, trampling each other, and getting into fistfights because not enough civil defense wardens were available. Also have a look at Atomic Alert and Survival Under Atomic Attack, both from 1951, that each show shelter-focused civil defense succeeding. We aren't quite to the aftermath episode of this four-part series, but I will say that these last two are very optimistic about the survivor's situation. If you had enough sense to get to the shelter and not fight over the entrance or be shot by your neighbors, then you might emerge into a world that could be reconstructed by brooms and buckets. You can beat the A-bomb makes that clear enough. Children, you better clear up the broken glass and all this debris. All in all, I'd say we've been very lucky around here. Nothing to do now but wait for orders from the authorities and relax. As unlikely as relaxing in the aftermath of a nuclear strike might be, it is a piece of the official advice of the film. When young Buddy is caught out in the blast, he runs home. This is a serious post-attack blunder. There was a brief concern about exercise after exposure. I suppose it was about circulating blood. I really don't know who came up with that one, because the military in the desert rock maneuvers were already marching into the mushroom clouds by 1951. 
You know, I should say that you can see in all of these early films of the nature of the attack and survival how completely the Second World War informed everyone's understanding of what it would be like. Radiation is mostly dismissed, and civil defense measures and survival and rebuilding are compared more often to Hamburg than Hiroshima. Although by the end of the war, both of those were burned out husks. When the strike came, everything relied on not abandoning those industrial centers. Our cities must fight in 1951 showed the mass evacuation of European cities in World War II. It encouraged urban residents to stay put during an attack because, quote, if war comes and we desert our cities, we've lost the war. That argument goes on. Every able-bodied person is needed in the city before as well as after an attack. Scattered throughout is stock footage of European civilian populations in disarray and civil defense workers fighting fires and demolishing gutted buildings. Nineteen fifty-three brought disaster on Main Street, with even more of a connection between nuclear civil defense and World War II civil defense. The film used imagery of Hiroshima after the atomic bomb and footage of the aftermath of the Texas City disaster of nineteen forty-seven, which was an industrial accident that created a three point two kiloton explosion. And then came the hydrogen bomb. By the beginning of the thermonuclear age, clearly racing ahead faster than civil defense could adapt, the World War II strategies were obsolete. Operation Ivy in late 1952 on the part of the United States and the first Soviet hydrogen bomb in 1955 left the general understanding of what a strike would be like completely unknown. It was a vacuum into which flowed fear and uncertainty. It was in that year of the Soviet H-bomb that U.S. civil defense produced Let's Face It, which described the new danger of the hydrogen bomb and how to adapt. In the thermonuclear age, civil defense, like military defense, must be flexible. It must develop and grow, even as the forces that threaten our existence. And so until men of goodwill have turned this awesome power to peaceful uses, let us recognize the threat to our way of life, the threat to our survival, and let's face it. Except that advice only lasted a couple of years before the film was declared obsolete and withdrawn. Why? Well, it was the advent of new missile technology that reduced warning times from hours to minutes. And that returned U.S. civil defense from its flirtation with mass evacuation to sheltering in bunkers when the bombs fell. Government films from about 1957 once again began to include fallout shelters as a viable survival measure in the event of an attack. 
and give much more serious attention to the radiological hazards. Eisenhower never put his support behind the shelter plan, but the incoming Kennedy administration saw the value, or I should say perceived value, of individual protective measures and of a national shelter infrastructure. Kennedy announced the plan in a speech to the nation on the 25th of July, 1961. He said that he intended to ask Congress for funds to identify space in existing structures and stock them with supplies. This was the beginning of the program that would leave those yellow and black fallout shelter signs all over the United States. They're recognizable to most. In fact, a lot of them are still scattered around cities because there was a lot of congressional funding to put them up. And as you might guess, no funding at all to take them down. And so many remain. One government film on the topic of shelters that I would recommend is Three Reactions to Life in a Fallout Shelter from 1964. It's one of the rare realistic films showing those first days in a fallout shelter before and after the strike. It has the look and feel of a Twilight Zone episode with demonstrations of rage and frustration and despair. While one character derides the yakking of civil defense officials and has to be restrained from physical violence, another character is despondent over the loss of his wife and son, and so he slips out of the shelter into the radiation and presumed death. As a side note here, mostly because I just thought of it in relation to this moment in the film, look for Shelter Skelter. It is an episode of the 1980s Twilight Zone reboot. It's a gem, and I believe it's available in full on YouTube. There is a lot of crossover in these later civil defense films between the themes of this series. For an example, the Your Chance to Live series I mentioned in the previous episode. But that series from 1971 marked the end of the U.S. government's considerable attempt to show the public what a nuclear strike might look like. From the 1970s on, the job of educating the public on nuclear war through film would fall on journalists and documentarians and dramatists with very different motivations from everything that had come before. Well, except for Peter Watkins' War Game from 1964. I've mentioned that before, but that was very much 20 years ahead of its time. Part 3. Facing the Facts. Documentary Film and Journalism. The early 1980s were a prolific time for films of the genre, and especially very critical journalistic pieces. It was a time of very serious anti-nuclear political activism, and whatever the motivations of the filmmakers and journalists, that feeling of the public translated into some of the most important works on the topic. They were works that still shake people up today. You can also think of it as the final convergence of decades of scientific development, political shifts, and public anxiety. 
because people knew more about more than they had ever before. Washington, NATO, and Moscow were all sensing a kind of endgame. And then add to that mix all of the political energy that had been untethered at the end of the Vietnam War. The liberal sentiment and the organizing skill of anti-war activism found a new home in the nuclear disarmament movement, whether Greenpeace or the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament. The BBC takes the top spot in this period because the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament was strongest in Britain under the new Thatcher government. There were a range of serious investigative films in these years. You can still watch them on YouTube, in whole or in part, and they really should be watched. In 1980, the television news magazine Thames Report produced The Bomb, Would You Survive? This segment looked at the effectiveness of the suggestions made in a home office information campaign called Protect and Survive. That little jingle sends chills down the spines of people of a certain age. While civil defense in the U.S. had moved away from nuclear planning, the Keystone U.K. civil defense campaign had been developed in the late 1970s and dealt exclusively with nuclear preparedness and survival. A 30-page pamphlet covering preparations and the post-attack period was written up, but not printed or distributed. It was too frightening, it seems. The Times wrote about the pamphlet and its contents in an article on the 16th of January, 1980, and it sparked widespread public curiosity that even led to the mass printing of the pamphlet in May of 1980. It turns out that people really do, in the most general way, want to know how to protect and survive. Back to the Thames report. With the help of an average suburban family, the news magazine simulated the conditions of a nuclear emergency and questioned whether sufficient materials would be available to create, on such short notice, a survivable shelter. In the moment before a nuclear strike, would such a thing even be possible? Well, the conclusion does cast a doubt on the civil defense advice in Protect and Survive. The narrator says, This rehearsal is a grim reminder of just how fragile our home defenses would be in the event of a real nuclear attack. Well, is that true? In the actual moment of a strike in the 1980s at the end of the Cold War after everything we had learned over those decades, was it true? Did these documentary film explorations have nothing but negativity to offer? A cynical view of survival. In Protect and Survive, there were distributed print materials and also 20 short animated films though they were supposed to be withheld until three days before the 
presumed nuclear attack, they were shown at various times and for different reasons. Many people I've spoken to have a memory of them, and of course they're all available to watch today. The 20 films had been secret, but they were leaked to the BBC, and parts of the collection were shown on the investigative news magazine Panorama in March 1980. This episode was titled If the Bomb Drops, and offered up simulations of situations that were far more dire than the home office was willing to admit. The eternal Jeremy Paxman introduced the program as an attempt to find out how many could survive a nuclear attack, what life would be like after such a catastrophe, and what's being done to help us survive, in the words of the show. The first narration of the film suggests the overall tone of that investigation. The film quotes General Sir John Hackett, the former commander-in-chief of NATO's Northern Army Group. After a nuclear war, the whole of Europe could become a vast, uninhabitable desert. No industrial society, nothing that we would recognize as government, would survive. There would be a state of total anarchy, with all those who remained alive prey to bands of savage marauders with disease rampant and violent death commonplace. In an all-out nuclear war, to use the word survival is idiotic. This episode details the lack of civil defense preparedness in Britain and shows a simulated nuclear war and one of the many local centers of control as they attempt to respond to the disaster and impose order from their bunker over the course of the first 14 days. The unsanitized details of the effects of a nuclear strike over London are described as Paxman flies over central London in a helicopter. A one megaton bomb exploded 7,000 feet above the House of Commons would create a fireball over a mile across over Piccadilly Circus, Trafalgar Square, the very heart of London. The fireball would last for approximately 10 seconds, reaching inside it temperatures of hundreds of thousands of degrees centigrade. Over an area for about a mile down as far as Vauxhall Bridge, there'd be winds of 700 miles an hour. And while some of the more substantial buildings might be left partially standing, they'd have shifted on their foundations. Anything else, any human beings would have simply Vanished. Another film shown on the BBC in 1982 as part of the series QED took the gritty depictions of a nuclear strike on London to another level. It was called A Guide to Armageddon, and the Times described it as a dispassionate assessment and self-consciously deadpan in its recounting of the horrors of a bomb over St. Paul's Cathedral. Self-consciously deadpan is a good way to describe the casual tone surrounding the shock-inducing descriptions of a one-megaton explosion over London with movie makeup simulations and 1,800-degree wind on a ham hock. The film is pretty frank about the futility of protect and survive, and the improbability of survival. After one couple featured in the film completes their sturdy interior shelter on the model provided in protect and survive, 
the narrator offers this commentary. That three and a quarter miles, Joy and Aerith should survive. At least for 17 seconds. This is also why I tell my friends and neighbors that duck and cover works. During this time period, the end of the Cold War and its Reagan-Thatcher days with a revolving door of geriatric Soviet leaders, the growing anti-nuclear movement fueled a variety of factually-based films and documentaries that brought the realities of nuclear war to the front of the public discussion. Investigative journalist Duncan Campbell published War Plan UK in 1982. It's a book I've frequently mentioned, and it offered hard evidence in the form of leaked government documents that exposed the problems with civil defense in Britain and the realities of nuclear war planning as they stood. And so the stage was set for ever more realistic wars in dramatic film and explorations of what it would mean to survive the initial effects of the strike. Part 4. Dramatic Film in the Late Cold War By the mid-1980s, there were a few notable and memorable examples of nuclear war in film that cast a kind of shadow of uncertainty on any meaningful use of civil defense in the moment that the bombs fell. They most definitely cast doubt as to the survivability of individuals, nations, and, importantly, the environment in the event of that kind of war. The environmental component wasn't necessarily new, but its sophistication by the 1980s marked a turning point in broader thought on nuclear war and considerations of climate science and survivability. Here we're talking about the specter of nuclear winter. In these years, dramatic narrative film provided the most convincing tests of the assertions made by Protect and Survive, and its various, more occasionally nebulous U.S. counterparts that had been published over the years. The effectiveness of civil defense advice in the immediate post-attack environment is visualized with relentless, horrifying realism in Threads, BBC 1984, and with somewhat more restraint in The Day After, ABC US 1983. That was due to network censorship, as many of you might have guessed. The two films stand as the most iconic culminations of the subject for their respective countries, but there are more that often escape the usual histories. Essentially, you need to know to look for them, and no one is going to push them on you in the common narrative. Here are a few for you to explore if you haven't seen them. You can get a pen. Testament, American, 1983. One Night Stand, Australian, 1984. Dead Man's Letters, Soviet, 1986. When the Wind Blows, British, 1986. And Miracle Mile, American, 1988. They all take up these issues thoughtfully, if not always entirely seriously. Each has a cultural tone unique to its origin, though. Each of them was informed by 
the same growing sentiment through the 1980s that survival at the moment of a nuclear strike would largely be an accident rather than the product of planning. And that survival might mean very little at all. In the 1980s, there would be no scenes of calmly filing into shelters, be they public or private. From harried and frantic last moments to outright panic in the streets, films demonstrated no faith that the few minutes of advanced warning would be anything but mayhem and chaos. The attack sequence in the day after is one of the most well-known in the genre, and is a dense 12 minutes depicting all aspects of the strike phase through stock footage, borrowed footage, original content, and special effects. Think about that for a moment. No commercials. More than half of the runtime of a network sitcom of just bombs and fire. There's a reason it left a mark, or a scar, on the American public. As it begins, an emergency broadcast system alert comes on, only a few minutes before Soviet missiles rain down over Kansas. Another example of the inability of civil defense to defend anyone at all. The broadcast advises people to proceed to shelter facilities, which are largely non-existent. In rural Kansas, some preparations are being made to stock a basement shelter and to shovel dirt against basement windows, which was advice from a bygone era of nuclear civil defense. Scenes of a supermarket mobbed by panicked hoarders suggest a general lack of preparation. When the air raid sirens finally ring out in the day after, a downtown Kansas City street is filled with people running in all directions without any idea of where to go. Cars crash into each other in a desperate attempt to escape, and finally a high-altitude detonation causes an electromagnetic pulse. An EMP that burns out electronics and the electrical grid. In many instances, technically incorrectly, and with great sensationalism, but let's talk about that EMP for a moment. The idea of beginning a nuclear strike with an EMP was very new, at least for the public. The effect had been a part of nuclear testing from Trinity in 1945, but thinking about its use as a potentially debilitating first blow started after the Starfish Prime nuclear test in July 1962. That's when a 1.44 megaton device was detonated at an altitude of 250 miles over the Pacific, and it caused damage to the electrical grid in Hawaii. For much of the Cold War, what was called the EMP laydown at the beginning of an attack became part of the strategic doctrine of both the United States and Soviet Union. The public only really became aware of the extent to which an EMP laydown could be used as a weapon in 1981, when the science journalist for the New York Times, William Broad, published three articles on the subject in the journal Science. And so both The Day After and Threads tried to show a recreation of what a nuclear attack might really look like by integrating the newest information on strategic nuclear doctrine. In fact, these two examples in 1983 and 1984 are the first time that the use of a nuclear EMP as a weapon 
showed up in film. Despite the fact that the Soviet Union had a relatively effective shelter program, at least in the urban centers, the Soviet-era film Dead Man's Letters shows a similarly terrified populace, cramming into insufficient shelters and begging for information in a chaotic melee. All in sepia tone, I might add. More on that film when I discuss the aftermath. The far less serious film Miracle Mile takes the panic in the streets to a hilarious level, appropriate to 1988 Los Angeles, with looting and riots, acrobatic bicycle accidents, and at least one instance of public sexual intercourse. Pessimistic, too, was the general view of a working civil defense. Survival, and certainly long-term survival, is shown to have more to do with distance from the targets than sheltered preparation. Of the several sets of characters in The Day After, there are two farming families, the Hendrys and the Dahlbergs. Though they both live in rural Kansas, the Dahlbergs have made a basement shelter and survive, while the Hendrys live adjacent to a missile silo and are shown to be incinerated. In Kansas City, despite having the benefit of a marked sub-basement shelter, those who have taken refuge are crushed under a direct hit. 35 miles away, Lawrence, Kansas is severely damaged, but modestly sturdy structures have made it through. Because survivability and weapons effects as a function of distance are so essential to understanding nuclear war, and had been such a major piece of Cold War civil defense planning, the day after is specific in its mention of real place names and its visualization of levels of damage at various distances. Threads is really even more exact. The city of Sheffield and various locations in the story are accurately named and represented, and the destruction at various distances is relatively accurate given known heat and blast effects. Farther from the bomb, the Beckett family shelters in the basement, though they lose their windows, while nearer, the Kemps have built an inner refuge, a lean-to shelter made of doors suggested in Protect and Survive. But the wall and roof have collapsed and leave them exposed to the coming fallout. As with the day after, the scenes in Threads are filmed in the exact places that they purport to represent. In When the Wind Blows, which is an animated film from 1986, the same lean-to shelter from Protect and Survive is built and stands up, but a general lack of understanding of the dangers of the post-attack environment on the part of the old couple leads them to leave the shelter after only a day and sit in the garden remarking on the destruction and, if you don't catch it, the smell of roast beef from somewhere, which is, of course, the smell of burned livestock or perhaps their neighbors. So in all of these films of the 80s, when nuclear war comes and it isn't stopped in a fun-loving romp like War Games and many others, death eventually comes for many of the characters who survived the strike phase. I should add 
That the Australian one-night stand leaves the fate of its characters ambiguous, as they shelter in an underground railway station, though the film has already shown the graphic suffering of victims in New York. In the day after, Dr. Russell Oakes, dying of radiation sickness, returns to a leveled Kansas City to die. It's left unclear whether the Dahlberg's daughter will die, as the camera tracks back to reveal a makeshift hospital on a university basketball court full of the dead and dying. Mr. Dahlberg meets his fate when he's shot in the chest by a family squatting on his land. In Threads, the Becketts meet a similar fate when they're indirectly revealed to have been killed by looters. Mrs. Kemp dies in the protect and survive shelter, while Mr. Kemp expires some time later of the effects of radiation. In When the Wind Blows, the elderly Jim and Hilda die together of radiation in their sleep. The protagonist of Dead Man's Letters also dies this way. Taken together, wouldn't you say these all show a general sense of ill-preparedness? And even those who survive by sheltering face some kind of fate. Radiation, starvation, violence. Some kind of reckoning for living into the aftermath. I might say, as you watch some of the movies I've mentioned here, consider whether they are really making an argument against death by nuclear weapons or whether they exist to warn of the aftermath. And that's where we will go next on the Cold War Vault. Thank you for listening to the Cold War Vault. This episode was researched, written, and produced by DJ Kinney. That's me. Please subscribe to the show and review it wherever you get your favorite podcasts. It does make a difference. And remember, duck and cover works, but only for 17 seconds. Until next time. <laughs>